Hello, and welcome to Trash and Treasures, where we watch the movies other people throw away. My name is Vry, I'm they, them, and with me as always is Dorothy, who is she, her. Hello! And we have another special commission episode this week. The lovely, uh, Chelsea, aka at Circus underscore Chan on Twitter, has asked us to do the impossible. Find something that nobody else has yet said about 1995 Showgirls. So that's where we're at on that. That's where I'm at emotionally. <laughs> oh, I have new things to say about it. <laughs> new hot <laughs> and spicy takes? I mean, they are certainly things I've not seen anyone say before. You know what? This is the podcasting business. We'll take that. And don't worry. I'm sure we'll say things that other people have said before that are still funny. I hope I mean, so. I mean, good lord. It's not like we can skip over that sex scene. I just... <laughs> It was honestly very sweet. Chelsea was worried that this was would be a little bit too extreme for our brand. Meanwhile, we had already started reading Frisk. Yeah. Just to be clear, we had both already seen this movie. Oh, yes. Twice. Many times. Like, <laughs> honestly, we had been hoping for an excuse to talk about it for a long time. So thank you, Chelsea. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, for anybody who wants to ask us about commissions in future we do have a right of refusal on our patreon but that's basically so nobody will ask us to do cannibal holocaust or boku no pico uh-huh so like if if it's not that probably you're good yeah i mean way back when we specifically were discussing so we don't want to do any woody allen movies any polanski films anything with real Violence against ch children or animals or people. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's it's a small list, but it does exist. <laughs> but it was still very sweet of you to worry about us, Chelsea. Thank you. This movie is just so much. It's precious, honestly. It's so much fuckery. I enjoy this movie. I do. It's not good, but I find it extremely watchable. It is not a movie you pay attention to, but it is extremely easy to have on in the background until, you know, the rape scene. Well, also, like, you may not think you're paying attention to it, but then someone will say literally any line, and your head will snap around like Reagan's in The Exorcist. Because, excuse me, you said what? With which delivery? I assume uh, everybody knows what Showgirls is, but... <laughs> yeah, no, this is going to be, um, because I assume everyone knows what Showgirls is, this is going to be a more context-heavy than plot-heavy epi episode. Yeah, I mean... Content warnings up front. Of course, there is the uh, infamously graphic sexual assault scene in the third act. Uh, there is a lot of dehumanization lang uh, language and visual imagery. A lot of nudity. A lot of absurd sex scenes. Racial stuff handled badly? Yes, uh, the, the movie has uh, racism problems. <laughs> a lot. Uh, misogyny. Just Yes, just general misogyny. A lot of anti-sex work shit. In a weird way. Uh-huh, because it's, it is using the fact that it is about strippers and dancers and the ways that those professions can shade into sex work as a punchline for these women are slutty and irresponsible, except have for our- no integrity. Mm -hmm. And fat phobia, also. Yeah, just so much body shaving stuff. Ageism. But at the same time, like, it is all of that. And it's about exploitation, and it's tacky, and it's but, also hilarious. I'm sorry. It's a movie that's impossible to take seriously. It's incredibly bizarre, and it was almost single-handedly responsible for destroying an entire rating category. It's, it has its own musical. It does. Oh, that was the greatest discovery of preparing for this episode, is discovering the Showgirls musical. It has a sequel called Pennies from Heaven. Which we did not watch. No. <laughs> Somebody will have to pay us separately to watch that shit. Oh, where to begin? And it's considered kind of a camp classic. Yes, although we have come in at a strange time with this episode, because now that the film is 20 years old, no, uh, 25. 25. It is 25 as of last year. We have officially cycled back around in the discourse, too. It was good at satire, actually. Y'all just didn't understand it. You just didn't understand Verhoeven's deep handling of sexuality. Which means that the other... We actually watched a whole second movie for this. <laughs> you mean we watched two 
extra movies for this. Yes, one was uh, the documentary released last year called You Don't Know Me, which is sort of about the showgirls phenomenon and the cultural reception of it. And that, is it satire? Is it shit? Is it art? Conversation. It, it reminded me of the documentary about Trolls too. Very similarly, except that it is only at the nascency of that cycle, which made it kind of uncomfortable as much as it was interesting. Yeah. Because it ends with Elizabeth Berkley going to the a fan event for the first time. Yeah. And then we also watched a film relevant to the screenwriter of this film. Yes, there is a Joe Esterhaus film that I insisted that Vry had to watch in order to uh, really understand where I'm coming from on this. Mm-hmm. And we will maybe sprinkle that in a bit later, because I think it's relevant. Dorothy has a theory. All right, so, 1995. Um, in 1995. So the basic plot is that Nomi Malone is an up-and-coming young dancer who has hitchhiked her way to Vegas to seek fame and glory as a dancer mm-hmm. it's been described as all about eve with titties i still haven't seen all about eve to my personal shame but from everything i know about the film yes because that movie is about an older aging star who is sort of taken on by this uh hungry young up-and-comer who at first she kind of takes under her wing but then oh no she is being usurped and her position is threatened so it's kind of also the favorite well, and also Eve and All About Eve is a scary lesbian. Scary, obsessive lesbian also. Oh. Threats to heteronormativity. Of with course. With her hungry desires. Man, I gotta see this movie. Love classic so. lesbians. <laughs> but uh, For a given value of love. It's true. The, there We've f- come around to camp again. Yep, basically. So, Nomi arrives in Vegas in the weirdest way possible. She comes with this guy and then gets stuck in a casino for hours pulling the slots. And when she comes back out, her suitcase is gone. Presumably the guy stole it, but also maybe he just got tired of waiting around for her. We do not know. Elizabeth Berkeley of Saved by the Bell fame at the time. I don't know what she was told by the director, but her performance is all over the fucking place. And so she snaps in her characterization, constantly hot and cold and to and from extremes. She's almost impossible to empathize with. And as somebody, you know, who is not her, the viewer will often find themselves going, well, you know, that person wasn't really as unreasonable as she's acting. (laughs) And it is one of those cases where it's quite thoroughly confirmed to be the director's fault, even though this ruined Berkeley's career for many, many years. I mean, Berkeley's not good in it, but... No, she's not good, but I feel like she is one of those actors who, you know, has a a niche that she is good at filling, the same as, like, a Nicolas Cage <laughs> or a Keanu Reeves. Sex. <laughs> sex. There'll be a lot of sex jokes, just get used to that. But because Hollywood sexism, and also because she got put into this role where she was coached to do these very physical, very over-the-top performative choices with her character. It was never going to be a good performance, even if you had fucking, I don't know, an actor who's good. (laughs) (laughs) But Berkeley definitely became box office poison after this. And a lot of that is in the way they have her just pull knives on people and throw french fries different places (laughs) nomi is not a normal person (laughs) we don't want to armchair diagnose but the way she interacts with the people in the text is deeply un-okay like she's not just selfish (laughs) right she is beyond selfish to other people seem to just be objects in her way approaching dennis levels yeah But fortunately for her, she gets taken in by Molly, a local seamstress and costume designer at the Stardust, who is the first of two helpful black characters that this movie is saddled with. Because again, it has a race problem. Or who are saddled with this movie. Yeah. I am pleased to note that both of them worked quite consistently after this film. 
I just feel so sorry for Molly, like, as a character, because she's clearly, she belongs in some nice UPN sitcom from the era. Like, she wears these cute outfits. And she's got, like, a bucket hat and overalls in one scene. It's and precious. Has, has a quirky job. And, and, like, this poor woman brings home this terrifying nightmare person and lets her, and uh, shares a bed with her. Yep. They're not girlfriends. Allegedly. Yeah, Gina Rivera is doing fine for herself, thank God. She was, I guess, had a fairly substantial recurring role on The Closer, that Kira Sedgwick show. Mm, so I like, never really watched that one. And uh, Glenn Plummer, who plays uh, James, has done a million and one things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, good for both of them for getting out of this movie intact. Mm. But, so, by her parasitic contact with Molly, Nomi, I want to stress, she she said she came to Vegas because she wants to dance. She at no point makes any, like, actual efforts to get a good job dancing and just start stripping right away, which is fine, but it's not what she wants to do. But we see her make no actual efforts to get a job dancing. Right, it's not like she's working as a stripper to keep, you know, money on the table and to keep herself fit while she also seeks out auditions. She just goes she's just, straight to the, the club. and. But because she is parasitically attached to Molly, she wanders into the stardust sees the titty show and decides suddenly that that's what she wants to do but again makes no effort to get cast <laughs> until a lesbian appears oh my god gina gershon is a queen <laughs> if you would like to see her in an actual good movie we did a, an episode about bound a few years ago which is a marvelous mafia heist movie Directed by the Wachowski sisters. Yeah, it's so good. And she's so good in it. And it's hot. Uh-huh. And she's sort of hot in this. Oh, she is, because Gina Gershon is hot. But- And also does not give a fuck. She knows exactly what movie she's in. Unlike almost everyone else. Yeah, that is one of the legendary bits of trivia around this movie is, to this day- about half the cast seems to swear that they thought they were making a very serious drama. Including Kyle MacLachlan. Yes, there is uh, one particular story that comes up a lot where he just stormed out of the theater as it was being screened and people could hear him shouting, I thought we were making a serious drama! No, no, an art film! An art, excuse me. Allegedly. Allegedly. But it, it is true that he maintains that he was under the impression that it was a serious film. And... Verhoeven also apparently, according to the documentary watch, put out like an art book in advance of the film, which was absolutely deadpan serious. That was maybe one of the most fascinating parts of that film because they had a couple of screenshots available from somebody who had gotten the book at the time of air. And it was one of those things that's very good to have documentation of because like with other films like uh, Wiseau and The Room, Verhoeven has since tried to claim that it was intentionally black comedy. And I'm like, is that now? But Nomi very quickly gets an invitation to audition at the Stardust in the silliest way possible. Yes, so the lead dancer of the Stardust show Goddess, Crystal, played by Gina Gershon, playing a drag queen by her own admission, and it's beautiful. As in the Dolly Parton and Elvira school of, this is a cis lady who's also a drag queen. Mm-hmm. She decides basically that she's attracted to Nomi and goes to her show and get, rigs her an audition and a place in the chorus line because she has the hots for her and enjoys and, fucking with her head for some reason. And she also brings a dude, Kyle McLaughlin, to the strip show so that there's a penis involved in the lap dance. Because I guess the cheetah has a no vag lap dance rule. Apparently. The cheetah or cheetahs, depending on which advertisements we see in film. What the diegetic advertisement has to say at any given moment. Yes, I'm complaining. By the way, this movie takes place over like six months. So strap in, folks. Six weeks into being in Vegas, Nomi nails that audition for the Stardust. 
Uh, or does she? In fact, she does not. She isn't as good as the other dancers who actually deserve the part. And but yet Crystal she gets, gets her the job. Yeah, and yet she gets the call back anyway because, you know, because fuck your the way world, to the middle. Yeah. And so, and then it ensues a whirlwind of backstabbing bitchery. She pushes another girl down the stairs. Well, she pushes Crystal down the stairs after somebody else pushed another girl down the stairs. She fucks Kyle McLaughlin. She almost fucks James, who is a dancer who wants her to go embrace her artistry instead of just, quote unquote, doing a topless show or dancing at a strip club. Like, he still wants her to do erotic dancing, just with him. It's a little confused. And eventually she becomes everything that she hated as the glamorous lifestyle solely consumes her soul. Except we never actually saw her hating any of that stuff. Yeah, I guess. Just, okay. So, I mean, I guess really she achieves everything that she ever wanted. But we're supposed to have a value judgment on it. She did push a woman down the stairs. Yep. Until in the third act, she invites Molly to a party to meet her favorite favorite musician. uh, Who gets her in a room and brutally gang rapes her along with his bodyguards. Which inspires Nomi to have a moment of moral clarity which results in her kick-stomping the shit out of the musician and nothing else. And then she leaves Vegas for L.A. with the same dude that she rode into town with. By coincidence. Who'd have thunk? See, it comes full circle. And of course, there's also a subplot along the way about how she used to do survival sex work in the Midwest. And that's why she was trying to take on a new identity when she came to Vegas which is why she had to leave town after helping Molly because they were trying to shut her up by saying they'd reveal her old records. Helping Molly. Quote, uh, heavy air quotes. That is what the movie wants it to be. She leaves two women in the hospital by the end of this movie. But like her black best friend got brutalized so that she could have a feeling about how she was doing a bad thing, actually. (laughs) Oh my God. Her girlfriend. Her girlfriend. They share a bed. I cannot stress this enough. They kiss. And chips. Chips and nails. Chips and nails. One thing I will say that showed really good restraint is whoever was in charge of hair and makeup and everything didn't give Molly long nails because it would have been harder to sew. I'm just pointing that out. She's the only person in this without these dagger claws. I do love weaponized femininity. Roar! I feel like that is the vibe of this film. Just that bad blood... (laughs) weaponized femininity if the current discourse continues on its current path we are going to end at the initial initial response to midsommar but showgirls (laughs) by the way this film is two hours and 20 minutes long it's so fucking long it has no excuse to be that long it's quite watchable but so fucking long Mm -hmm. it's also very nude oh yes so many titties titties for days and not a lot of bush but a lot of vulvas <laughs> oh yes i think so every star in this is shaved or waxed <laughs> the fact that we don't see kyle mclaughlin's dick i don't even want to but it's a matter of parody uh-huh there's no dong in this because paul verhoeven is a coward and a weakling <sighs> so let us discuss camp dorothy Tell the children what the hell camp is because the internet doesn't know that's very unfair for you to ask me to give you a specific definition of camp because the whole point of Sontag's essay was Uh that camp cannot be explicitly and specifically defined. It is a sensibility which centers on the lack of naturalism and the heightened energy in these often queer works and that it should be something that is to be found in art rather than intentionally cultivated. Ah, yes. Probably the most contentious part of that essay for people who came afterward. Yeah, or even people who were who came at the same time. Because, so Sontag wrote Notes on Camp in 64 originally, and then it continued to be re-released and expanded and such for quite a while. And even at that time, there were people who I would argue were intentionally creating camp, like Waters. So... There is a flexibility and a fungibility to that. But that being said, creating intentional camp is much harder. And camp 
frequently arises not just from something being bad, but from something being this extremely heightened, unnatural portrayal of interactions. It's like a frequency of noise, almost, in many ways. It's bright, it's loud, there's an intensity to it. It's not naturalistic. It's very hard to pin down, which is why people go back and forth forever on if if something camp. Yeah. Now, Verhoeven, as a satirist, has created something that also (laughs) slides into camp, I think. Mm -hmm. We can say. Because a lot of satire is campy, if not camp. This is camp. Decidedly camp. But not intentionally so, I don't think. Yeah. Which is why it's important to point out that Verhoeven has retconned himself on that one. Feeling that it's better to do it intentionally than unintentionally. Because to do it unintentionally seems a mark of ineptitude. And I I think also just a lot of what makes something camp has to do with audience response and crowd reaction. It's, it's something about that symbiotic relationship between viewer and text. And I think that's where a lot of camp works shade into being cult works. Is queerness inherent to camp, do you think? Because, like, when I think of something like The Room, it, it is clearly a midnight movie. It is a subject of parody, but I don't think that I would instinctively, as a gut reaction, say, ah, yes, that is camp. Because it is so based in the misogyny towards Lisa and the audience and this sort of very hetero bro audience reaction, as opposed to something like Mommy Dearest, even. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of camp does have sort of a histrionic vibe to it and often a feminine edge. So I wouldn't say necessarily it's always queer, but I think there is also a feminine edge to it that sort of situates it differently with regards to misogyny. If a camp film is misogynistic, the misogyny is part of the heightened Mm -hmm. aspects of it, like female trouble. Right. Which is this camp satire about misogyny and about all of these ways femininity interacts with criminality and sexuality and non-normative behaviors. So I don't think camp is necessarily always um, queer, but it frequently is because femininity tends to be so vilified in mainstream society i have heard people trying to pin down ideas of what heterosexual camp would be and ew yeah and i'm not sure what that would look like other than possibly you know kevin can go fuck himself or something maybe i don't if it's out there it's not for me or maybe like i guess you could say i dream of genie might be heterosexual camp yeah i guess where it's you've got this orientalist fantasy about this blonde girl who exists in this daffily subservient role but is secretly magical which i would that then also make bewitched hetero camp but i mean i feel like bewitched is more grounded in a way whereas i think the sort of masculinist fantasy of i dream of genie feels more because she lives solely to serve you master Right. Whereas I think Bewitched is more along the lines of, I married this nice girl, but ah, her family. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. And so often when we see, you know, traditional gender roles expressed in camp, they're part of the hilarity. And like you mentioned with the nails, there is definitely something going on with femininity in showgirls. I think Paul Verhoeven has an idea of something. Well, I think Esther has, has an idea of something. Ah, yes. And now is the time. So, this movie destroyed the relationship between Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaas. Verhoeven directed, Esterhaas was the writer. Esterhaas had written Verhoeven's previous effort, Basic Instinct, A film which has some very distressing uh, claims Uh around it. Yeah. Essentially, Stone claimed that uh, she was told that that the movie would just have reaction shots and would not actually show a shot of her vulva. 
And that she was told to remove her panties because they were reflecting too much light. And if you are a younger viewer, the important thing to know here is that the most talked about scene in that film is when she is being interrogated and she crosses and uncrosses her legs and you can see a shot of her vulva. That was the shot of the film. Yeah, I mean, and it got talked about on a par with Jay Davidson's penis reveal in The Crying Game. Like, that was the level of... It's probably what started the website Mr. Skin. There is a a sketchy history here, Yeah, is what we're saying. Esther Haas had been working in Hollywood for, you know, 15, 20 years. As a writer, but also frequently as, like, a script doctor on projects. He was often the guy you would bring in to make a project work in 10 days. And he's good at it. But yeah, so Esther Haas wrote Basic Instinct, which is an evil bisexual movie. And he thought that the direction Verhoeven was taking it was too homophobic. So that should give you some idea of, like, the fact that there were already tensions here. Because he wrote a definitely homophobic and biphobic movie, but he thought that Verhoeven was taking it a little too far. And when it was being protested, not unlike cruising, he sided with the protesters and was like, yeah, Verhoeven's doing some fucked up shit. Damn. Now, I'm not lionizing Esterhaus here. No. (laughs) The man's laundry list of sins is still there. But... This movie basically destroyed their relationship working together because it made both of them laughingstocks. They were both riding way high on the hog going into it. They were granted money and permission to make whatever. Yes, this was famously the most expensive purchase of a script in Hollywood at the time. Yeah, and this was the big NC-17 movie. Like, there had been some NC-17 movies before, like Henry and June, and... Was Clockwork Orange X-rated? I can't remember. Clockwork Orange was X. NC-17 didn't exist yet. NC-17 was, like, the new 90s thing of these are going to be sophisticated movies that are going to handle themes that are too deep for an R rating, but they're not pornos. This movie blew that to hell. I mean, this made NC-17 an unbankable there is, market. Yeah, there's a whole little subsection on showgirls in This Film Is Not Yet Rated, which we have also done an episode about in the past that I think holds up pretty well, actually. And I recommend you, if not listen to that, seek out the movie, even though it's out of print, uh, sadly. You can find it in places. Yep, and it's super good. But yeah, this entirely shredded the notion of the NC-17 movie as a marketable thing which i assume is why crash not a you know not two years later had that abysmal r-rated cut even mm-hmm. though it can only survive as an nc-17 rated movie yeah yeah because this just shredded the market for it these movies like this were seen as unbankable because this was such a flop ultimately made 37.8 million lifetime box office on a 40 to 45 million budget yeah now i bring all of this up because i have always had a theory about showgirls which is that it is esther haas taking a second bite at the apple to revisit one of his earlier projects cronenberg style yes and that film is the other one we watched before recording this episode that i made for i watch flash dance a good movie honestly with a great score. I even love the the Moritor version of Metropolis. A contentious position, but I love it. <laughs> we support you here. Yeah, Flashdance is if Showgirls were good. Kinda, yeah. Well, I mean, if Showgirls were passable. It has a lot of feelings. It, it's, it's a little an messy. It's 80s melodrama. It's 1983. Listen, I've watched a, a fair number of melodramas about steel towns and lives of quiet desperation it's surprisingly subtle in ways i would not expect you know you don't i mean it's definitely a a more competent watch than say schrader's efforts in that direction oh which is almost identical i'm just pointing out you're gonna keep talking about light of day until somebody asks us to re-record that episode Uh uh-huh yes i am because it's wild i support you babe it was one of our earliest episodes, and the audio got eaten, so we had to re-record it real fast on the fly. Please don't listen to it. Please, dear God, it's unlistenable. 
the plot of Flashdance, now stop me if you've heard this, is about a uh, young woman who wants to make it as a dancer, but she is working doing exotic dance as part of, you know, honing her craft because she is in fact scared to go to the academy in front of all these dancers who've had professional schooling and she's afraid that they'll laugh at her. Where'd she learn it? They don't teach it. And she <laughs> takes up with an older asshole rich guy who is a total creep and her boss. But also gets her access to the audition so that she can finally get a chance to dance and show her stuff and blow the minds of these fuddy-duddy stodgy academics by doing jazz and modern inspired dance and hip-hop dance because that movie is doing something with race that it's not admitting to doing it's it's the loudest subtext that it refuses to acknowledge yeah the actress in question is jennifer beals and she's a mixed race actress and the movie's doing this thing real hard where it never says that she's black but, but it's leaning real hard into trying to make you notice how modern and exotic she is the the sort of racialized framing of her dance versus the extremely white nature of the scenes at the academy kind of thing yeah and well and also having her specifically stop and watch break dancing on the streets in a black neighborhood where everybody else there is black. Smarter people than us have doubtlessly talked about the racial elements of Flashdance. But, like, it, it's there. It's, it's there. Just... This is extra fucked up, though, because Flashdance was actually based on a, a real woman from Canada named Maureen Martyr. She sold her story to, like, Esther Haas and the production company, for $2,500. Oh, that poor woman. And then it made, like, hundreds of millions of dollars. And she didn't see any of that. Of course she didn't. Yeah. So, like, that's fucked up. So maybe this is karma. We can hope. <laughs> they are le similar. There's even, like, similar shitty bro characters hanging out in the background. But Flashdance was directed by Adrian Lyne of, uh... Jacob's Ladder. Of Jacob's Ladder fame. So. <laughs> well, I'm not sure it's fame. It's just me and the other Silent Hill people at this point. But it was well regarded at the time. Yeah. I fully buy your theory that he was attempting to do it again. But the director he picked was so different that it's no longer this, like, character drama about these tensions and this interpersonal the conflict and, and the hunger for fame. Suddenly it turns into, like, Basically a bunch of plastic sex dolls shrieking at one another. Because America. I do have to thank Verhoeven for at least bothering to leave Denmark to come to America and shit on us, unlike other Danish directors. <laughs> okay, but <laughs> Dancer in the Dark is a better movie than Showgirls. Oh, oh, Showgirls made me compliment Lars too. I have to wash my mouth. I have to. <laughs> Here, you want some of my cider? Yes, I'm yelling clean. <laughs> But, like, the similarities are there. Uh-huh. Absolutely. America. I will give the film this. In terms of its set dressing and the sort of background visuals, it is quite competently made, which is why I think people, to an extent, picked up so much on the disconnect with the performances, because there is because so much it, competence it in the It looks like a real movie. <laughs> right, Yeah. You Don't Know Me spends an entire section of it going over. Here is all the subtext of the of the movie. And it, somebody, I can't remember who it was in there, says the best thing. Yes. Hold that thought for just a second. Yeah. But like the multitudes of mirrors and the the comical but effective thing of know me. Of, you know, you don't know me or get to know me or there is no me because no me doesn't know who she is. And like, okay. Yeah, and it, it's all stuff that, you know, would be discussed in, like, a year one film class because it is encoded and therefore decodable, like the raven. This specter of death is here saying you will never see your, your ex again because she dead. There is basic filmmaking craft and it's part of what makes the parts that don't work so eye-popping. This does have that very heightened vibe that Total Recall has, but I don't think you'd call Total Recall camp. No. 
because I think he has a better grasp on what he's doing there when he's making movies about men. And then, yes, the documentary has this absolutely exquisite quote where they're talking about the famous dog food scene. The let's go out and eat lunch together for reasons scene. Because they're supposed to be, the running thread of this film is supposed to be the rivalry slash sexual tension between Nomi and Crystal, except that the movie isn't competent enough to do that. Or to do anything with that. So it just pops up every now and then when Gina Gershon is happening. Yeah, no matter how hard Gershon tries. (laughs) And she is trying, God bless her. This wonderful... A commentator in the documentary talks about how, you know, you're sitting and you're decoding all this wonderful subtext of this film and, you know, you brought up like, you know, doggy chow is something you eat when you are in poverty because you can't afford other food and like. Yeah. The meaning of that scene is there that Nomi's realizing that they've both experienced poverty, that Crystal didn't just step into this role from already being up here, that it's always a climb. And, like, there's all these wonderful multitudes, and you're thinking, wow, this is so smart. And then you realize there is no subtext. And, yeah. yeah That's like, it. The guy was right on. Like, my God, you've nailed it. It only looks like it has subtext. You can encode so much in... You can bring your own decoding into this film in so many ways. But it's empty. Yeah. And not in a way that feels purposeful, I don't think. As much as Verhoeven, to his credit, has defended um, Berkeley's performance. And, like, he's, unlike a lot of directors who kind of throw their lead actors to the wolves when they force them to do weird performances, he's always been pretty on with, like, yeah, I asked her to go really out there, and I think she did a good job. But, what am I saying? I don't think that the movie has an idea of where it's going with a lot of these things. It's it's like a whole movie for that experience when you have that tertiary character in a shonen anime that you're going to put a billion headcanons into and they've had two scenes and they like bread. <laughs> Nomi likes chips. And nails. And nails. And but allegedly you, she likes dancing. We guess. And we see her dancing. And she does a lot of very sexual shit, but doesn't seem to like sex. And then there's the problem of her shocking backstory, quote unquote. Right. So the first, most of the beginning of the movie tries to paint her as this sort of ingenue character who's slowly being broken down into and integrated into this world of vice and and exploitation. Who is just shocked, absolutely shocked, when Crystal sells her out to this promo event where they're implicitly being pressured to sleep with investors. Asians of all things. Yep. Bonus Orientalism. Uh, well, th- there's a lot of racism against Asian guys in this. That's true. There's, there's penis jokes too. Mm-hmm. There's that going on. But then you find out that she was spent a, a lot of her past years doing subsistence sex work in yeah. a lot of places. Different places. <laughs> Motherfucker went to Cheyenne. Ain't nobody go to Cheyenne. She grew up in Oakland and somehow, for some godforsaken reason, went to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Fucking piece of shit town, Cheyenne, Wyoming. God (laughs) God damn Cheyenne, it's the worst. (laughs) My favorite thing was that this time when we put the movie on and we were just sort of casually watching the beginning of it, you looked at it and were like, was that Wyoming? The opening scene absolutely looks like they shot it in Wyoming. And it was. And it was. <laughs> was it near Lusk, I wonder? <laughs> but like, which is the better movie? Ready to Rumble or Showgirls? The better scathing indictment of the cynicism I feel like of an industry that exploits people's bodies for visual <laughs> display. I mean, I feel like Ready to Rumble is better at achieving its own goals. I'll say that. <laughs> By the way, please watch You Cannot Kill David Arquette. Yes, we're going to do a bonus episode on that. I will make it happen. Fascinating documentary. Sorry, I just wanted to shit on Cheyenne. I hate that town. <laughs> Goddamn pretensions thinks it's better than every other major city in the state. Thinks it's Denver or some shit. It really does. And none of them can drive. Anyway. <laughs> but 
So we are supposed to buy that she has, she's trying to get away from this past and make a new life for herself. She's a very aspirational character. Which is why I will to this, I have always maintained that the Versace scene makes no sense. Explain to the people because you're right. Um, at one point, Nomi buys a dress from Versace. Because she finally has money and she wants to get herself something that feels expensive. And for some reason, Molly's not asking her about the rent. I guess. Or money for buying chips. Mm-hmm. But, or, you know, all of the the acrylic gels and shit. Cannot have been cheap, I assume. <laughs> no. But anyway, so she buys this dress from Versace, and then she goes around bragging that she bought it at Versace because she's such a rube. But she is such an aspirational, acquisitive character. You cannot convince me that she doesn't know how Versace is pronounced. My most generous reading of it would be that she's read it and, like, seen it on things but never heard anybody say it. But I think it's more likely she would have heard it said. Like, I think that's more likely. Your reading makes more sense to me, is that this is a character who... Like, um, it's bad writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) that this would be a character who acquires brand name things because they immediately sign. Yeah, like... Wealth and status. Yeah, like it's a signal. It's a symbol. Mm -hmm. Because she knows to brag about it as a brand. The minute somebody compliments her on it, she immediately moves to bragging about the brand she's purchased. And that would make sense with the direction her character goes in the fall from grace thing. But then we wouldn't be able to do Crystal pulling out the rug from her by saying Versace. Not to mention Kyle MacLachlan's character then revealing her backstory to us the audience but it almost seems like just as much of a shock to the character it's very odd because she's been such a void up till now it doesn't map back onto her behavior through the rest of the film except in that she was always super paranoid when people called her pollyanna (laughs) and also she does start the movie being extremely aggressive and nervous towards truck guy Understandably, because I'm sure that truck drivers have tried to take advantage of her and not paid. Yeah. But then that immediately goes away as soon as she gets to Vegas. And all of a sudden she is not suspicious of people's motives when she has seen- super naive. That transactional sex happens a lot here. She worked at the Cheetah where her boss expected everyone who worked there to give him a blowjob. What is the character consistency? Does it exist beyond scene to scene? Yes, I am asking why Showgirls does not have better character writing. Yep. Because if you want to write a satire, it doesn't have to be a likable character, but you do have to have a consistent through line. But, like, it feels very similar to Esther Haas's writing around Beals' character in Flashdance, who, I have to give him this, she's an extremely believable 20-year-old dumbass. 18-year-old. 18-year-old. She makes a ton of terrible decisions and is constantly just getting herself into messes and doing things that are not well thought out, but in the way I can remember doing stuff when I was 18, where I thought I had a handle on shit, or... And I think a lot of that is is Beals being so fantastic in that role. Yeah. And just the way she makes ill-thought-out decisions fits. And seems realistic for an 18-year-old who is not as worldly as she thinks she is. But even putting aside Berkeley's performance, the writing of Nomi's character makes no goddamn sense. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it just feels, again, like sort of inflated. Where we're taking this character in this direction now. And just... it feels like they just could not resist putting in that twist. Even though the twist doesn't illuminate anything. Yeah, it feels very functional in terms of, like... Like, she could have had a reason to leave town when she beat a dude. Well, we need a reason for her not to go to the cops when Molly is hospitalized. And, of course, the reason can't be, for some reason, the police are corrupt. Even though she worked at the Cheetah, which was a real club that closed this last year, by the way. It has reopened at as the Library Gentleman Club. Yes, that's right. It has the same joking title as my old college bar. I'm at the library. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I, I've worked in plenty of towns that had an office. But, so she worked at the Cheetah, or Cheetahs, which was an actual club for many, many years. Just like the Stardust. I bet they both really 
you know, I bet I bet Cheetahs didn't mind being featured in this movie, but it did not help the Stardust, I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Which also does not exist anymore. <laughs> Much sooner. So Cheetahs was involved in this scandal called Operation G-String, which was about financial corruption involving Las Vegas officials and strip clubs. And, it would be very and easy. And strippers have been at the forefront front of a lot of like labor movements in recent years and stuff. Mm-hmm. So like, there's a lot of stuff about financial exploitation and and labor exploitation, often involving the cops. Like that sh- happened <laughs> to it, dancers. Surely, in this incredibly overstuffed movie, you could work in a brief scene where she tries to go to somebody at one point early in the film. And it comes out to nothing, and then that gets echoed later. Heck, there is a scene like that where after she goes to the event where she's expected to sleep with these businessmen, you know, McLaughlin puts on a big show of firing the guy who was at the event only to, as soon as Nomi is gone. Be like, come on, I'm back, bro. Which, honestly, I think that scene works. That scene is chilling. Yeah, no. But it only works if she's naive. Mm Mm-hmm. There are a lot of scenes in this movie that I think work in isolation, and then you try to stitch them together into this horrible cobbled monstrosity that makes no goddamn sense. This is going to sound really superficial, but I think another of the problems with this is the makeup. Because the makeup on all of the actresses is so heavy at all times, no matter what's happening, that it's very alienating and it also sort of takes the teeth out of the commentary on youth and aging that keeps cropping up in conversation because because you can't tell that Nomi is any particular age again unlike in Flashdance where Beals is obviously very young <laughs> so Malone could be anywhere from 18 to 30 like she's extremely fit as dancers are. I feel so angry and, that they don't let the, the background dancers get more screen time because they're good. Yeah, and like there's the constant shitting on Gershon for, you know, being an old and withered hag in, in the way that so many anime do. And yet she is Gina fucking Gershon. So the most the movie can do is that in the very last scene where she's hospitalized and she they can take finally her rest, makeup off. Uh huh. So she has the tiniest little bit of mouth lines like humans do. Like humans do. I will say, that is a thing, part and parcel with, as expensive as this movie is, it looks very cheap, and I kind of fell down a little bit of a rabbit hole looking up topless shows, <laughs> getting ready for, <laughs> that for research. Wrong. Yeah, you know. You were reading it for the articles. I absolutely was. I don't actually have any photos <laughs> of the topless bits. It well, was yeah, then why would you go to the show? I did get kind of bummed out that it's, it's such an expansive topic that at a certain point, you kind of got to read books, and the libraries aren't happening for me right now. Right. But, so, like, showgirls go way, way back, obviously, but topless shows started in Vegas in the 50s, and they got imported from Paris, where it started in, like, the 30s. And the first, one of the first shows... And this is not burlesque, this is, like... This is different. They are... Spe- topless shows are a specific, distinct subgenre from burlesque in that... They were... They're like chorus line type shows, but they're, titties. They, the one that came directly over from Paris and ran for over 30 years was this review show called Lita de Paris. And it was a review show where all the women had to be over 5'8". Yep. All the dudes had to be over 5'10". Yep. Uh, you had to have small natural breasts, no enhancements, and it's basically just scenes, which I assume... And because uh, Lido de Perry ran at the Stardust, I assume that's what Goddess is supposed to be in reference to. And Goddess looks terrible, by the way. It does. It looks fucking awful. But, like, these shows were so expensive. You would put on these 50-pound headdresses and stuff studded with Swarovski crystals. Swarovski. There it is. Thank you. I hate Don't that worry. fucking word. Nobody but me can pronounce it. <laughs> Thank you, darling. I hate when I hear people say, like, Swarovski. <laughs> It's a hard word. It's hard. <laughs> there are really interesting articles with former showgirls because who have kind of retired from that golden age where they talk a lot about how and the, I, the topless show existed in this kind of gray zone where you had 
yes, you weren't like a lot of people are out from outside the business are going to think of you as, you know, quote unquote, not a real dancer because you've got your tits out. But in the world of, of Vegas dancing, it has this very uh, classy air because you have to fit these very specific physical. Like a rocket. Yeah, basically like a rocket. And also. So I assume that this is like what the Gina Davis character on Glow was sort of supposed to have started out doing. I would assume. Those shows are so, like, millions of dollars, those shows. And Showgirls looks cheap. Yeah. Especially given that Molly is supposed to be one of the seamstresses for the show. The only one, as, as far as we might We tell. only need one for these shows that are probably going to be ten set pieces with a different costume for each. Right, and she has one sewing machine in her in her trailer where she lives. And it is not an industrial grade. Uh, there's no leatherworking equipment there. And there are bondage costumes. Mm-hmm. You can't make that shit out of cheap, cheap fake leather because you need it to hold together for these extremely physical shows, you know, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. Sorry, it's just a rant. But <laughs> it, it, it's especially noticeable to me, though, because one of the, fir- the only times we see Molly working is this moment when she when Crystal calls her over and like complains about the fit of her bra and says that like it's basically cupping her her breasts too high and and shoving them up and too uncomfortably high and that it doesn't look good and so Molly's like yeah I can just uh let it out in back which really shows to me that they didn't talk to anybody about how those are fitted mm-hmm. like they they don't understand how the cups in a bra or in a bodice operate and because that's not what you would do and that's not what you could do that wouldn't help the problem being complained about especially in a performance context where you need it to work in a very specific way and it just bugged me and i think that's sort of a symptom of the way they're talking about this industry that's centered around the female body and performance of femininity without actually engaging with any of the mechanics of it we never see anybody going and lying in tanning beds they tell nomi don't go out in the sun because we don't want tan lines but she's tan you never see anybody going to tanning beds we just hear about their diets for all of the stuff about how this is the you know commercial commodification of the female body this movie cares so little about its often quite lavish costumes and the ugly boring realities of making that happen or letting these women's bodies look imperfect when they're not putting on this show for any length of time that contrast is never there so the satire doesn't land i think that is failure of in intent and uh and what's the word i'm looking for uh execution i think it's just it's because they want to have their their cake and eat it too if you will I mean, because they want to be talking about how horribly, you know, sexualized this industry is when when it's all performative and fake. But they also want to have this the simmering potboiler backstage sexy drama between the girls. And, you know, they want to shine a light on how terrible it is that these women's bodies are so commodified and controlled and have to fit these standards. But also we have fat jokes and... And our heroine eats burgers and chips all the time. By the way, this movie was somebody's first film role. Who? Uh, the chick who played Penny? No, not her. Because she's a real stripper. She was also in striptease. She funded her own independent sequel to this called Pennies from Heaven. Good like, for her. Yeah. No, uh, Lynn Tucci, who played uh, Henrietta. This was her wow. first film role. And one of the... You know, she's still working. She had quite a lengthy role on orange is the new black actually you know the uh, lady with terminal cancer she was her cellmate oh good for her good for her yeah i felt really bad oh this oh this (laughs) oh ma'am you were you were like i assume she she had been doing similar work for a long time i hope so like i wish the best for her so i think it falls into that same hole that a lot of 30s through 50s exploitation films would use to try and get around the Hayes Code, in that they'd say, we would like to condemn this these lurid happenings of teen sex. Look at these teens having sex. Isn't Look it at bad. that. Isn't it terrible? Now everybody dies of syphilis. What was that one review I read of uh, that Confidential Confessions manga 
50 minutes of sinning and 10 minutes of repentance. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm not gonna lie, when people get into the Showgirls is good, actually, Because uh, Rohan such a genius and we didn't appreciate him. It kind of makes me think of Zack Snyder bullshitting about Sucker Punch. <laughs> You know, that his whole yeah. shtick where he's like, no, it's actually the, a feminist film. You are the people in the dark in the audience slavering over these girls. And I'm like, shut the fuck up, Zack Snyder. You, you are the one popping a boner over these actresses you have shot in skimpy costumes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it is just sort of, it doesn't have the grit to actually say, say this is unsexy and actually make it unsexy. It's trying so hard to make everything still be sexy. But it's also somehow... But it's repellent? (laughs) Right, and it's also somehow not heightened enough to be that truly transcendent level of camp. Yeah. The only remotely erotic scene in this whole movie is her dance with James. That scene works? Yeah. Despite the dialogue. Despite... I got towels. (laughs) Listen. You know what? Gallant. (laughs) I hear period sex is good. There's a whole song about <laughs> it, you know? There's a whole song about it. <laughs> well, no, there's there's the first three lines of a song about it. <laughs> and, of course, the best part of Showgirls is learning that there is a Showgirls parody musical, which which the documentary goes into some detail about because it, it finds the woman who, who played Nomi. Who had also played Jesse Spano in Bayside the Musical. And got the role specifically because she made up a song about being high on caffeine pills. Perfect. And she talks a lot about how she had been assaulted and she was having, she was in this dark place in her life, having a really hard time dealing with the fallout from that and how playing Jesse and then uh, playing Nomi really helped her work through the trauma of that event. Because she was a broke actress who couldn't afford therapy and... So being able to have like these fake over the top, you know, caffeine freakouts was kind of her way to purge that shit. And it's a really, I feel better than anything else in that documentary about how showgirls is empowering, actually. That part of it really actually illustrates how transformative work of camp properties works and heals people. Yeah. Which is not the same as saying it's good, actually, mm-hmm. to my mind. No, it's 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 substantively different. It's not yeah. the work itself. It's what you excavated from the work that worked. Yeah. That, I, that <laughs> sentence is nothing. That sentence is nothing. <laughs> but yeah, it's that reciprocal relationship between audience and text and, and the act of reading that I think is integral to the camp experience. And the fan experience, too. But with camp especially, I feel... Also, it has given me knowledge of the song, I'm a whorier. It's a whore and a a warrior warrior combined. combined. (laughs) Which is the best thing (laughs) that this film could possibly have given me. (laughs) It's a miracle. It's a treat. I demand an entire recording, which clearly exists because they had clips. I'm sure someone on the dark web has a recording of it. Probably. But musical fans are bastards. And they're really into that tit-for-tat thing so they can incriminate you if you sell them out. <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, don't pro- Man, I don't know. I, I, it can't I even be like, don't watch it. Showgirls. I would recommend watching it. Like, it's fun as it's long as fun. you're aware of the- tri- Like, as long as you're aware of the trigger warnings. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. No. But it's fun. Uh-huh. And I think that unless you would- definitely be set off by one of the specific triggers we mentioned in the way it's handled here i think honestly it's one of those things that's worth a watch just as a cultural object yeah just as a cultural object as a phenomenon as sort of a moment in 90s filmmaking as a moment in filmmaking in general because this is why we don't got no nc-17 no more Mm -hmm. (laughs) that shit is dead yeah, and like this is what killed that. And just sort of to see it and and have the opportunity to talk about it because you will want to talk about it. My god, you will want to talk about it. Do take care of yourself. And also Paul Verhoeven, you are full of shit. Uh-huh. And I want you to know that. You'll yeah. never hear this, but I want you to know. <laughs> Please don't let him be the type that self-googles. Oh my god. 
<laughs> he can't possibly. There's too much at this point. We're, we're okay. <laughs> and like, I've liked Verhoeven films in the past. I think he is a genuinely good satirist in, in many cases. Like Robocop and Starship Troopers are both really interesting films. And I think there's somebody who's working on a big Verhoeven retrospective right now. Um, I think it's Kyle Kalgren. Yeah, he's been working on it for like a year. But who knows? It will probably come out around the time. That probably this it'll drop like the week we put this out. And that is be how buried. our life works. When we reviewed Tusk, it came out and then the next day, <laughs> Kevin Smith had a heart attack. Yep. And we had to be like, oh, God, did we kill the man? Oh, God, we're so sorry. We are not trying to dunk. But yeah, I, I think that is an example of what happens with Verhoeven when he tackles material with absolutely no perspective. Yeah. It's one of those things where you don't want to be like, only women should make films about women. But but he should not have made this film about he women. He should not have done this because he did not... He does not understand it, and he did not do the work. Yeah, and and Esther Huss, too, should not have tried to rewrite this film. The first one was a huge success. Yeah, well, Flashdance Flash was huge. It's beloved. They, they poached an entire plotline for Pose. They sure did, and it was charming. It was so charming. But I mean, at the end of the day, Flashdance is a very personal story. It's a very individual story, and this wants to be... A satire about an industry and a cultural problem. Yeah, so everything about it was mismatched. You had the wrong writer working with the wrong director. And as the star, you had basically that phenomenon of the Disney Channel star who's got to get her titties out to show that she's a real actress now. You've got the quirky indie guy who always works with David Lynch. And then Gina Gershon, who knows exactly what's going on. I can even see why Berkeley chose the role to an extent because you can see how in another movie th- there's probably like a really good A24 film about <laughs> Nomi, you know? Yeah, it it's called Starry Eyes. Yeah, no, you're right. It's called Starry Eyes. Dude, just watch Starry Eyes. That's a good movie. <laughs> if you, if you're cool with a lot of body horror cuz that was so a lot of body horror. Well, and Berkeley apparently also took the role because she wanted to do the dancing. Which is so sad. Because she doesn't even really get to do that much dancing because the camera is does so much fuckery. Yeah. One of the things that I liked the least about the camera was that we don't get a noticeably different perspective from the first time Nomi views the dancers to the first time she's on stage. We don't get that moment where where the camera turns and and we see the audience or the onlookers. We don't feel any different about the position of the gaze in a way we should if we're in Nomi's perspective because the camera still wants to ogle her body Mm -hmm. yeah despite employing many very talented dancers it is not a good film about dance it does not understand how to shoot dance yeah unlike flash dance (laughs) Mm -hmm. which has one hell of a a flashing light warning but yeah it, it really is good at drawing you into her performances yeah, or her doubles performances. Yeah, that's that's true. Her poor <laughs> uncredited double. Yep. And that is Flashdance. Nope. <laughs> I mean. And that is Showgirls. Chelsea, I hope that we managed to make an episode to your satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, it's so much to talk about that it really was hard to kind of decide where to take this. So we just kind of gave you a buffet platter. <laughs> literal books have been written on the subject one of which is it's good really and i mean there's a whole version of the dvd that comes with essentially a riff commentary by the man who was famous for putting on the first midnight movie version of the film so like there's options yep there's drag performers who have been doing this for years peaches christ oh uh-huh Magnificent. Also clips of her in that documentary. Yep. It, it has been taken to the bosom of the camp community. You know what? The presumably unclad, except for little diamond pasties and the ravages of ice. Bosom. You didn't even talk about the ice! Okay. There's been discussion about whether the ice represents oppression, and I side with the idea that it represents the idea held by many cis guys that anyone who doesn't have a dick desperately wants one. 
I don't think it's actually about oppression. It's about penis envy and the desire or need to become erect in order to demonstrate one's potency. That's my take. I don't think that's correct, but I think that's what it's trying to say. Yeah. I mean, considering all of the... Is it Gina Gershon who has that horrible costume where she has a the belt with the front bit hanging down right between her legs? Yeah, yeah. In a scene where, where it's a literal dick measuring contest, basically. She has this representation of a dick. And I think that there is a lot of very Freudian phallic stuff going on with these characters. Showgirls really is the best kind of bad movie and that it's <laughs> in no way good, but my God, there's so much to talk about. And shit that's made with Freudian assumptions is whack as hell. We have to stop now or we'll be go we'll go another hour. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but, but like I I do think that's a thing. Mm-hmm. All right. And that's why her nipples are red when she beats a guy up. They're her big red hard-ons of anger and power. Oh my god, the fucking I'm right. No, you're right, and I hate it. And that brings us to the end of the episode. If you <laughs> liked what you heard, you can find more of us on your podcatcher of choice by looking for Trash and Treasures. We'd love it if you could leave a five-star rating or review because it helps folks find us, but we're just glad you're here. You can also find out about commissions and other stuff like bonus episodes by going to our Patreon, patreon.com slash trash and treasures. We are also on email, uh, trash treasures pod at gmail.com. And we are on social media. We're on Tumblr, trash tre- and treasures pod.tumblr.com and Twitter at trash pod. Uh, come say hello to us and we will give you a shout out on the show. I would like to give a shout out to confused underscore cuckoo who left a comment on our recent drunk book club and apparently Dorothy managed to scar them for life by bringing up exquisite corpse. So I feel like you've done good. Oh boy. I feel like that's a success in our book. 90s transgressive literature is a moment. It's a whole thing, a whole mess of a thing. And we will be here next time with another episode of Go Crows as we dive into season two, which is very exciting. Yes, you'll get to see how that uh, whole tornado situation played out. I I know you have been on tenterhooks. This entire time. Just hanging from that cliff. And uh, after Go Crows, we will have a uh, drunk book club commission. It's been a full year of commissions and honestly, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Keep them coming. It's been fun. It's really fun. (laughs) And until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye, y'all.